turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We're preaching through this first book of the Bible, this book of beginnings, that we might understand the foundational truths of life of ourselves and of our God. We're coming to what is one of the most famous biblical stories, one of the most famous biblical characters of Noah, the ark, and the flood. We'll be spending a couple weeks working through this. Uh, the, the Bible gives a pretty good amount of space to work through this event, so we want to give proper time to it. In general, we, we tend to think that compromise is something that's very good and, and helpful in life. It's seen as a path of, of wisdom. Uh, two sides who respect one another, uh, listen to one another, and, and come together to forge a path of, of being together. And that's a wise way to approach life and think about how we engage those that we disagree with. Uh, but there are places and times where compromise simply not only is, is unwise, it, it's not even possible. We see that in the world today, what is happening with Hamas and Israel. Regardless of what you think of the geopolitics of the Palestinian and Israeli people, the, the organization Hamas has in its very charter, its, its reason for existence is that the people of Israel would not exist, that the nation must not exist and the people be eradicated and pushed out of that part of the world. That's their reason for existence. That's why Israel cannot compromise with Hamas. Hamas doesn't even want them to exist. There's, there's no common ground to find. In a very similar way, sin is always at war with God. Sin by its nature and existence is the declaration of no to God. Sin is, by definition, the rebellion and turning away from God to a different direction. Any compromise that sin would seemingly suggest is always a facade and a lie. Sin has no interest in compromising or having any common ground with God. Sin always leads us away from our Heavenly Father. And so God, who is good and wise and just, will always judge sin. And that's what we see at the heart of our passage today. So Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, 
The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupting God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for your earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the earth according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your voice would speak clearly to our hearts, that we we might know what is true of ourselves, of you, that we might know how we can follow you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 6 begins with an attempt at compromise. It can seem, if we're casually reading, that 
the, the first chapter or the first paragraph of the chapter kind of is something jammed in that doesn't really fit between how chapter five ends and then the, the account of, of Noah. But it's, it's an essential paragraph that is explaining to us what was happening and how. Uh, there are some that claim this description of the sons of God and the daughters of man intermarrying, uh, that it was angelic beings who came to the earth and married uh, the women of the earth and their children were these terrible giants. Uh, as much as that could be exciting for some people to think about, um, the Bible's not made for us to just come up with stories and thoughts of what maybe could have been. Uh, the Bible's given that we might follow what it tells us and it would guide us in how to think about it. Uh, what is the storyline that is taking place when we think about where the Bible is taking us, we come to understanding about each piece of it. And we have been seeing in the last two chapters uh, that there was one line that came from Eve through her son Cain that was completely corrupted. Cain murdering his brother and his descendants continuing with that spirit of rebellion. And then scripture makes this clear contrast. And Eve again bore a son and his name was Seth. And we saw how from the line of Seth came those who were godly. And we had highlighted before us last week the, the person Enoch who walked with God and God took him as a way of illustrating that God will deliver those who follow him out of the earth, that though God must bring death as a wage to sin, by grace God will give life for those who trust in him. And so what we have in this first paragraph where it speaks of the sons of God seeing and marrying the daughters of men, we are seeing... The, the foolishness and sin of the compromise of those who say they love and follow God with those of the world who have no concern with the things of God. We have the, the sons of God, the, the line of Seth, looking at the line of Cain and intermarrying with them. Now, it, it didn't look like a dreadful mistake to those people who were pursuing it at the time. First of all, the, the women looked attractive. It's the same thought of what, what was going through Eve's mind when she ate of the fruit. This looks good. This is going to work out. I know God said, but... We can make this work. 
And that is what was happening. Those who have been trained in the truths of God were were looking at the world around them and wanting to be a part and seeing those that they desired and uh, to share life with them, they, they began to compromise. And it even seemed to work well at first. We're, we're told that their descendants, it gives the name of the Nephilim, it said that they were mighty and of renown. And so this compromise between the people of God and those of the world, it seemed to be successful. They pulled together their, their lives and resources and, and joined in, in building something that looked successful. And their, their children grew in wealth and power and notoriety. And, and, and the people of God were, were tempted to think, see, we haven't fully rejected God. It, it, it's going to work out okay. God's people turned their eyes to a new kind of success from what God had given them. They began to see success as having the world's favor and having the world like them and to partner with them and to to have Descendants who would be famous and powerful and wealthy and successful by the measurement of the world around them. And they were able to accomplish those things. And it seemed successful. It seemed wise. It it even seemed as though that was good. How do you measure the idea of success and what you want life to be? How do you measure what is a good life? What makes you stand back and say, well, that was good. Is it that things just are going smoothly now, people are happy with you, that you have things that you want, that desires are being met? And we deepen the question. How are you helping your children become successful? What does it mean for you in how you're thinking about moving forward? What does it mean to you about giving advantage to your children? Bringing into their lives that which is good, that will help them. How do you picture what will be the good life for your children as they enter and work through adulthood? And If you are thinking as this generation thought and as the world thinks, you are making the most dreadful decisions that you could make.
that has been true from the early generations of this world. It was the warning that God repeatedly gave his people in Israel when he blessed them and gave them the land. What was the great warning he gave to them? In your success, don't, don't start to neglect God and begin to partner with this world around you. It's the warning that, that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthian church who were caught in all sorts of areas of partnering with the world to be successful with the world. It's not an obscure issue problem. It, it, it's not a precipice that only a few topple over. It is the foundation that the word of God presents to us the backdrop behind what is to come now for these next chapters. It is why the judgment of God came. A flood took over the earth. Why the ark had to be built. Because the people who called themselves the people of God compromised and joined life with those who did not care about the things of God. God's people thought they could live at peace with ungodliness. Now, the Bible does say we are to be peaceful, peaceable as, as much as up to us with people in the world, meaning that we are to be gracious and uh, we're not to war and fight with people, to be arguing with them, to have mean-spiritedness and not to be get, able to get along. There, there's a difference between gracious relationship and interaction with the people that you know and meet. There's a difference between that and joining and compromising and thinking that lifestyle and values and our actions can join together with those who care not about God and it will work out fine. The result did not take long because sin doesn't compromise. We may think, well, just a little bit to get along. Sin is saying, I want it all because sin wants the place of God. And so we move from this intermarrying to verse five. What, what came of all of it? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Because sin never compromises. It will lie and say, oh, that's enough. 
that little area of your life, that's all I ask for. Just this moment, just this time, just because of these circumstances. Oh, sin, sin has a lot to say about, oh, just little dab, little time, little compromise, and sin every time is lying. Sin by nature is rebellion against the rule and person of God. To justify itself then, because sin is pushing God away, going to another direction, and so sin must justify this, and so sin will seek us to deny and kind of contort and change the truths of God. To blur them, to say, God doesn't really mean, oh, I know it says, God doesn't mean all the time. I mean, God doesn't want us to be fanatical about that. Oh, really? Ask Ask that of Jesus. Did God want all of his heart? What what was Jesus' opinion about how much of us does the Father want? How would Jesus answer the question, how often should God have how much of our heart? And so sin overtook their hearts, but they, they couldn't see it. Because sin is not only deceitful, it's blinding. It, because, it, it, first of all, it takes that, that direction of sight from the person of Christ and, and wants us to, let's just set it upon other things. And those other things begin to fill our attention. And we're so concerned, we're working for these things and ourselves. And so we're not thinking so much about him who is worthy. And so people fill their hearts with sin. And sin breeds selfishness. That's what fertilizes sin selfishness, what I want, what I like, what I desire. And selfishness leads to violence. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Why was violence the result? Because when we're selfish, Anyone who wants something else is in our way. We don't want people in our way. And when we're self-centered, our way becomes God. And whoever your God is, he demands to be worshipped. And that includes if God is your own desires.
God sees sin clearly, correctly. God sees the intention that sin really has. God sees the motivation. God sees the end game. God sees the result. It's all clear before him. Nothing is hidden. That's what we're told, verse 5, the Lord God saw. We see it in verse 8, in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11, in God's sight. God is seeing all of this. A sight that is knowing, that is understanding. A sight that that has conclusions and responses that he will have. All sin, all your sin, will never stop pulling you from God. The smallest crumb of sin in your thinking, in your heart, is lying to you all the time. The proof of which is you have allowed it to stay. Something that is completely destructive and corrupt by nature. And so sin will always spread. Sin will always deepen how casual are we if we discover there are cancer cells in your body how do we think about that how intently is it your desire that those cells are eradicated by whatever means possible. How desperately do you want those cells to be gone? Because we, we've seen it. We know what cancer does. We hate the word because we've seen what does its ravenous nature how it spreads consumes have we not seen that is sin have we not seen its ravenous desire have we not seen how insidiously it spreads have we not seen sin is never content? Whatever boundaries we put around sin, whatever fences you raise up, sin goes under, around, through. You will never fence off sin. Whatever boundaries you place upon it, if it has a place in your heart, it will overcome those boundaries. 
We do not rule our sin. We repent of sin. We have God remove our sin. But sin that stays is sin that rules. And it will get worse. As every person here knows by personal testimony. We, we have you know, that phrase, uh, verse 3, we can kind of pass over, forget. And in the midst of this, God says, My spirit shall now abide in man forever, free as flesh, his days shall be 120 years. God, for some reason, in this background paragraph says, I'm going to shorten the lifespan of humanity. What had we seen in the previous chapters? Hundreds and hundreds of years men lived. Imagine a heart that hates God that continues in this world for centuries and centuries. The thought of how evil that heart would be and how far that life would go to remove anyone in the way, that's frightening. And God in a judgment that was also grace, limited how long we could exist in this world as a a way to keep us from being even worse. God sees all sin and it grieves his heart. That's that's how he describes it. Verse 6. It grieved him to his heart. It grieved him because of his love for those who were pushing him away. Because of his love for those who no longer held to what was true, but were pursuing what was destroying their own lives. And God grieved. For we were created, his beloved in his image, we were created to walk with him, to know him, to love him, and to live in the full, overflowing, unending expression of his love for us. That is your true identity. When we rejected Lord, Creator, God, he was grieved and he was rightly offended. And when we corrupted the world, he was rightly angered. We may try to make peace with sin, 
but God never will. And so, verse 13, after what he saw, God said, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And in verse 17, behold, I see, you see now, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. If you're thinking God's going to accept your compromise, you don't know God. However, in the midst of all of this was Noah, who was faithful and didn't compromise. Verses 8 and 9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. God saw him. Imagine how Noah felt in the midst of all this, alone. Does God know how hard this is? Does God know the loss I take? How people treat me? But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. For Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. For Noah walked with God, like Enoch, Noah also. He lived in the presence of God. He lived knowing he was in the presence of God. He, his actions were, I am in the presence of God. Since Noah and God did life together, he walked with God. Noah had God's favor. And because Noah had God's favor, Noah would receive the gracious care of God and he would be wonderfully used by God. And all of this would be manifested through the ark. Verse 14, make yourself an ark. Of all the things Noah thought God might say to him that day or any day, I'm not sure ark building was ever in his plans. What I want to do for the next hundred years of my life. The ark, this was massive. If you've ever been to the, the Ark Experience Encounter, which has a, a full-size replica of the Ark, and you can't see it from the parking lot because it's behind a rise. You, you get on their shuttle, and you go around and come over, and then you see it. The Ark, because we don't use cubits in our usual measurement. Perhaps you do, but 
In case your friends haven't told you, if you use cubits, that's just weird and stop. Because <laughs> no one knows what you're talking about. The, the cubits mentioned, uh, in language you can understand, it is one and a half football fields long, one and a half, the width of a football field and a half wide. Length, width, about 45 feet tall. That is massive. The ark would protect Noah from the judgment God would send. The ark would preserve a remnant of life to repopulate the world that God would cleanse of sin. Now, question may come in. Your I would almost think you're talking about Noah's Ark as if that was something real. Are, are we to treat in our day of sophistication? Are we to treat Noah's Ark as history? Yes, because the Bible does. We're we're without option on that. Uh, yes, the Bible has lots of figurative language. The Bible uses lots of parables, and it lets us know when it's being figurative and when it's using parables. The Bible is clear when it's being figurative, and the Bible treats through the rest of the Bible, including the person of Jesus. They all treat Noah and the ark and the flood as history as real. And when you go through this whole section of chapters, the specificity of it shows the realness of it. If we treat what the world scoffs at and we make a compromise, well, it's easier to say that was figurative. It happened so long ago. What's it matter if it was history or figurative? That's the argument that many, even Christians, make with much of Genesis, chapter 1, creation. It doesn't really matter if the Bible's being historical or figurative. Just, let's just think about God. Uh, let, let's just think about God. How do we think about God while we say, but what you've told us we're going to just pretend is all fables. Let's think about God and deny the word of God. A foolishness. God is not interested in pursuing in his relationship with us. When we compromise with those parts, it just, it's just easier. If we all just agree it's fable and figurative. Those who do that, they are one step away and that foot is already in the air to take it. They're a step away from, and so is the resurrection. 
of Jesus, the only hope we have. The ark is history that also illustrates. It is a picture, but it is historical picture of our salvation. God's judgment will come upon sin. It is a picture of what God did and what he will do when we all face him. The ark, the ark is not a cutesy story. You know, cuddly animals with their heads sticking out the ark and Noah, you know, kind of a Santa Claus look with a white beard and, you know, the rainbow in the background. Just this most cutesy story. It's so cute. We have to make figurines and plaques out of it. It's, it's so warm and fuzzy. Nothing about Noah's Ark is warm and fuzzy. The Ark is a picture of God's judgment, a demonstration of it. It is a picture that God will save his people out of judgment. It's not a mean-spirited story. It is a God is serious and God is gracious story. And the salvation God gives comes by the means he assigns alone. There was no other way. And how the ark was to be built was specific according to God's standard as the tabernacle and temple would be specific as God designed because they all will be pictures of God saving his people. And when it comes to the salvation of God's people, it is all what he says. We have no creativity in that process. Now we have a boatload of questions about the ark. I've been waiting the whole sermon to say that. <laughs> you have to know, Eric was supposed to preach. He probably even has a sermon for this passage and then he has a stomach illness. Now I offer, we can have a bucket here, that's no problem. <laughs> You can preach. I won't be on the front row, but you can preach. And then last night, he's not preaching. When you're writing a sermon late, what, what seems funny and creative and interesting? They're going to love this. And that's how we got to... We have a boatload of questions about the ark. How did they build something so big? How did they get the animals in? You know, how did all, how did all this work? I've got questions that the Bible is completely unconcerned with answering. 
because God's purpose is not satisfying our curiosity. The Bible is relentless. It, it strips away details of curiosity and distraction so we might keep our focus on what is happening and why. There are two conclusions, and yes, we're getting really, really, really close to the conclusion of this message. There are two conclusions we must clearly see. One, God will judge sin. Two, God has a way of salvation for his people. God must judge sin. God will save his people. There's a, a passage that points to this that I want us to look at. Second Peter chapter 2, just to read two verses, kind of to, to connect this with what does the New Testament say? How do we interpret this? How, do we, how does this land on us? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven, seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Knowing the ark is not a children's story. It's a war story. Sin is at war with God, and God will defeat sin. God will not compromise or sign a peace treaty with sin. And Christ is his champion. And his champion has already won. Which means that those who are in Christ cannot lose. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to see through whatever may have been cloudy to us or blurred. Help us to understand what may have been deceit in our hearts, in our thinking. Lord, may we see you truly and Christ truly in the greatness and holiest, holiness of your name and in the overflowing supply of your grace to save that we might push all things aside to bow to you and trust ourselves to you that you, faithful God, would save us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.